0: Welcome to A Matter of Principles, a podcast of the Association of Washington School Principals. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Arendt, Associate Director with the Professional Learning Team here at AWSP. We are excited to bring you Inclusion 360, a special podcast series that will bring the inclusion discussion full circle. Inclusion 360 is the culminating event wrapping up our year of learning, exploring, and implementing inclusionary best practices and diving deep into how to be an inclusionary leader. This work has been made possible by a generous grant from OSPI. Our AWSP team has assembled some of the most dynamic and sought-after inclusion experts in the country to bring you this special six-episode series. This podcast series will feature Ladera Horn, Keith Jones, Dan Habib, Lauren Katzman, Alfredo Artiles, and Glenna Gallo. Hey, and that's not all. On May 10th, you can meet this amazing team of experts for a free live webinar. You do not want to miss this event, so go to our website and register for the Inclusion 360 live webinar. For now, enjoy this podcast series.
1: So good afternoon and welcome. Uh, this is the Association of Washington School Principals, Director Chris Esplen, uh, here today with uh, Dr. Alfredo Artilles. He's the L, uh, Lee L. Jacks Professor of Education um, at the Graduate School for at Stanford. And we're so excited to have you here with us to talk about inclusive uh, practices and inclusion uh, in education. So welcome, Dr. Artilles.
2: Thank you, Chris. I'm excited to be part of this effort, and um, I'm excited about the conversation.
1: And and that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to get started with just a few questions. Uh, So thank you, Alfredo. So our first question is, what are critical challenges for the implementation of inclusive education in the 21st century?
2: Thanks for that question. It's it's an important question because inclusive education has been with us for a while. Uh, We know that it became a global movement in the 90s. Uh, It was an important point in the history of education. Uh, It started very ambitious. It was an idea and a movement that promised to change the educational system, to be welcoming to all forms of difference and heterogeneities present in the student population. So that was exciting. Over 100 nations signed up to the declaration of Salamanca in 94, and it's evolved since then. Uh, But at the same time, it's interesting that as we examine the evolution of inclusive education, it's it's changed the meaning and the audiences that are uh, presumably benefiting or being targeted in this work. So when we have looked at research over the last 25, 30 years, we see an increasing attention to students with disabilities in the context of inclusive education. So it's become mostly uh, proxy for special education. however. Most people working on inclusive education will say it's not the same as inclusive education because it has different assumptions. And the idea is that uh, the educational system should be redesigned and open to address the multiple uh, diversities that are found in any system. However, the challenge that we have, one of the challenges is that the idea of inclusive education really, needs to improve or refine the meaning of this notion. When we look at the literature, inclusive education has multiple meanings. Uh, It's an idea in search of meaning, some people have said. Uh, When we look at at their research in the US and at the global level, actually, you have very different pictures of what it means. We see multiple discourses around the idea of inclusive education. Uh, The presence or the visibility of inclusive education in the U.S. has changed over time uh, in a direction that is not always aligned with the way it's been addressed in Europe, for example. Um, In the U.S. we see uh, people framing things differently in the last 10, 15 years, Uh, but we also see this uh, attention to students with disabilities as the primary defining target of inclusive education. There is nothing wrong with that. It's just that it reduced the breadth of communities that we wanted to uh, tackle in, in in the name of inclusive education. And you also see meanings that range from moving students from one type of classroom to another. For example, from special education classrooms to general education classrooms, and they call that inclusion. As we all know, educators know that just by moving a student from one space to the next, if you don't make other adjustments, you're not including, you might be even excluding more that individual. So you have that more narrow view of moving from one space to another one, all the way to conceptions of inclusive education that are very uh, systemic. And they mean in that context, inclusive education uh, defined as a reconfiguration of the basic assumptions and, this, and the structures and the practices and the tools that are used uh, in educational system to be responsive to the uh, variety of needs represented in the system. So that's a way more ambitious idea of inclusive education. And we have a lot of options in between those two extremes. Uh, So back to your question, one of the challenges is we need to be more clear in the meaning. When you hear, what do you mean by that? We need to push leaders and, and really operationalize. I remember visiting Uh, a country in Northern Europe a few years ago. Uh, In fact, one of the countries that has been uh, intimately connected to ideas of normalization back in the eighties and inclusive education later on in the nineties. And I said, I would like to go visit an inclusive education school. And I went to visit and it was a school populated 99% by immigrant students. So it was a very segregated space in this school, primarily devoted to students from other countries. And I thought that's an interesting use of the idea of inclusive education. What would you call it, inclusive education if you're pushing different kinds of groups? And they were completely blind to it until I brought it up and started to discuss the research. So I just mentioned that as an example of how sometimes we make decisions and change structures and practices in schools without necessarily stepping back and reflecting on it. So. As we think about these challenges, the implication is that we need to bring reflexivity to our work, to the things we do, to stop and really ask the hard questions about what we mean by this. So refinement of meaning is one, major one. A second challenge is to engage professionals, teachers, psychologists, speech therapists, all professionals in schools, as well as leaders, at the school and district and state level, uh, with the idea of disability as having a dual nature. I've been um, writing and uh, advancing the idea that disability has a dual nature. It has a double um, um, identity. By that, I mean that disability is very much an object of protection. We think about disability as something that uh, defines the experience of many people that triggers responses from the state, from communities to provide resources, to provide supports, to protect them, to make sure that they have an equal chance to participate in family and community life. And we provide entitlements and resources for them. It's a wonderful thing to do. But at the same time, when you look at the history of disability, we know that the other side of disability beyond this aspect of protection is that disability can be used to discriminate and to stratify, to build hierarchies. And sometimes we have evidence from multiple nations. We have done studies about this and we find that sometimes systems use disability as a way of marginalizing, as a way of pushing students out, as a way of isolating them from resources. And then the challenge for us is to say, if if disability can be one or the other, can be such a good thing and also can be such a tool of marginalization, that means that we need to be always concerned with equity. We have to always ask the question, what are we doing around disability? Is this becoming a tool of segregation and inequality, or is it a tool of empowerment? And if we don't ask this question on an ongoing basis, we tend to miss this dual nature of disability that is critical. And for that reason, we always need to be asking, what counts has been disabled in this district or in this school? What? Who gets the label? What are the consequences of the decision to diagnose an individual with that disability? Are we treating people in ways that are fair and equitable? And so, this notion of the dual nature of disability is critical. A third challenge that is connected to this point is that intersections matter. We have to ask questions about who uh, is uh, inhabiting this diagnosis of disability and how do other markers of difference, other identity, Uh, configurations are connected to disability? Are we talking about mostly English learners who are getting diagnosed as disabled? Is it mostly about certain racial groups, Native Americans, African Americans, girls or boys? And so for that reason, it is critical that we always ask the question, what is disability intersecting with? because there is a history of those intersections in the history of inclusive education. And it's critical that we uh, remain mindful of this uh, point. I remember doing a study in California a number of years ago and found that English learners with disabilities had a higher chance to be placed in special education in affluent schools, in schools that had more resources, that had better qualified teachers, that had more funding per pupil, And the question was, what is the association? What is it that English learners of all groups have a higher chance to be placed in those contexts where you have presumably definitely better situations and uh, safety nets. And that's not to say the school was wrong. All I'm saying is that we didn't find that out until we started to look at the intersection of disability with race, with social class, with second language, et cetera. And it's critical that we uh, follow that kind of Uh, reasoning as we try to understand that intersections matter because if you look at the research we know that certain racial groups have a higher or lower probability to be diagnosed as having a a disability depending on the disability category or the location of the school so i'm going to make this up because i can't remember exactly the way the pattern goes in the research but It might be possible that African-Americans might have a greater chance to be placed in the EBD, the Emotional Behavioral Disorder category in suburban schools. Again, I'm making this up, but there are patterns along these lines showing these kinds of intersections. Or it is possible that the same group, African-Americans have a greater chance to be identified in the intellectual disability category in other kinds of schools. So that connection between location, disability category, race, or any other marker, reminds us that intersections of these ways of classifying groups uh, play a significant role. So that was the third challenge. And let me just finish with a fourth challenge. Um, That is that we must be mindful of the fact that the knowledge base that we have in special education, for the most part, is largely colorblind. A lot of the knowledge, a lot of the interventions, the assessments, the teaching strategies and pedagogies, the uh, research that has been done to develop curricula, all of those efforts that are well intentioned efforts that have made a significant impact in the case of many students have been based on an assumption that everybody is the same. We haven't paid attention to cultural differences, we haven't paid attention to linguistic differences. It has been mostly white students, mostly uh, um, middle-class students. And it is possible that a lot of that knowledge base serves many students well, but it is also increasingly apparent when you look at the research in the learning sciences, that if you take into account cultural considerations and language issues, you end up with uh, important adjustments and adaptations for the way we think about the knowledge we use in schools. So to realize that we have a knowledge base that has been oblivious to those differences is a good reminder that we need to be always asking what kinds of adjustments and and, um, adaptations that we need to make for the different groups that we have in our schools and districts to make our work more responsive to their needs. And that's part of being inclusive. So let me pause here and see if you have any follow-ups.
1: No, I, I, what you're saying completely resonates um, with me, and and I think I think deeply about that intersectionality that you talk about, and the power of school leaders to really think um, about how do they know this the the children that they serves experience, because that's really what we need to understand. And so I, I think about how do we go out and um, understand kind of like the sto- what I call the story of one in following students and not just in a singular way of those who are receiving support in special education, but what other places do they intersect? And oftentimes when we explore those opportunities, we unearth things that we have assumptions obviously going in and biases. And then when we start to see what is um, students' experiences, we might begin to understand why we might have a disproportionality um, of over-identification of students who are Latinx also English language learners and also receiving supports in special education and when we start to understand their experiences, you start to see well what's happening for them educationally and we start yeah. to you can whole kind of some of those experiences and that's kind of that, that targeted universal if we provide supports kind of like universal design if we really design instruction um, you know just speaking from a actually a sister, um, a mother, a (laughs) teacher, a principal, a director, who's walked that path, right? And understanding and and realizing I thought these things. And then when we actually started to follow across our district students um, and understanding what their experience was, we had all these assumptions. And then we started to understand, you know, if our targeted students that we were looking at who were special education and also English language learners, um, we're never given an opportunity to actually have um, converse and have discourse. Right. So that helped us to figure out what really needed to happen and how did we need to shift and start to address the inequalities that were happening in terms of instruction. Um, but had we not figured out or followed in the story of one and, and looked to that intersection, that just really spoke to my heart as you were speaking that I thought, Absolutely. Um, And there's, you know, just so much out there, but um, so I appreciate you raising those four pieces because they are so critical for us to question as leaders in the system that we're leading. Um, So it comes to my next question, and I I love this one. Um, I just really love this one. What does it mean to rely on a historical imagination when designing and implementing inclusive education?
2: Yeah, we could spend a lot of time talking about that one, don't we? we?
1: (laughs) I just, I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear this one. (laughs)
2: Right. Um, What does it mean to use a historical imagination in inclusive Mm. education? And by that, I think we mean that we need to be mindful of history. We need to bring a historical perspective to the work that we do in inclusive education. It means that Uh, inclusive education is set up and is implemented in contexts that have deep roots in communities and in the lives of people and in the lives of of individuals and the trajectories of communities. And in order to understand the historical aspect of it, we need to be reminded that our lives, our trajectories, the lives of uh, families and communities are fraught with issues of inequities that inequality unfortunately has been present throughout the history of this and every nation in the world. And we need to account for that. We need to be mindful of the fact that there are significant inequalities and disparities along specific groups in society, women, racial minorities, linguistic minorities, uh, people defined uh, as different because of their sexual orientation, etc. cetera. And when you look at the data, there are really, uh, there is a plethora of of data showing that racial disparities and inequalities are present across sectors. This is not only in education, they're present in the labor sector, in health, uh, uh, in other areas as well. And unfortunately, there are patterns of intergenerational disparities that certain communities have experienced inequalities across multiple generations mostly around socioeconomic status and political participation. And for that reason, it's critical that we think, what are the implications of living in cities and communities in which certain families and, and uh, groups have suffered from these disparities? And you know, one of the, the interesting things I find in the work of Michelle Fine, for example, she writes about dispossession and how entire communities have been dispossessed and how that dispossession leads to what she describes as the miseducation of students, particularly low-income students and students of color. And she did some interesting work, uh, Michelle Fine in California a number of years ago around uh, a, a class action suit concerned with this issue of um, historical legacies of inequality. And she did a lot of uh, focus groups and interviews and uh, interacted with people at different levels of the system. And as she reflected on what she learned from this perspective from the youth, she's very much into youth perspectives and children's perspectives. She said, many students spoke of the lacks that their education has instilled in them as if they embody the inferiority of their schooling. So they found that the schooling offered to these groups was really of a different quality there were dilapidated schools, there was a revolving door of teachers because teachers came and left for a number of reasons, financial, socioeconomic, etc. And over time, kids attending these schools started to think and feel about themselves as if they also lack a lot of things as individuals, as human beings. And so I, I think we need to, in order to bring a historical imagination, we need to acknowledge that. You know, there is fascinating data from Rachetti's uh, group at Harvard showing how the idea of the American dream, the fact that we expect our kids to do better than us, that you see this progression of social mobility from our generation to the next one. That has been part of the American dream. We want our kids to do better and our grandkids to be even better. When you look at the data about that, there has been a steady decline since the 1980s that the the next generation is doing worse off than us. That's a scary thought and it it cuts across society and is more accentuated in certain racial and socioeconomic groups. And so we need to account for that. We need to make sure that we take into account the fact that not everybody has access to the same resources that didn't, when they come to us, that didn't have access to the same kind of schooling that might have enabled them to be ready to engage in the work that we want them to do. And bringing a historical imagination includes all of those things. So that's one thing that inequality is there, is alive. It's gotten worse, unfortunately, in the last 25 years or so. And then we need to ask what are the kinds of supports and resources we need to make available in the work we do in these communities. The second thing for me about a historical imagination is that we need to remember that disability has had some complicated entanglements with other categories of difference. Specifically, disability and race have been very intertwined throughout the history of special education and inclusive education. If you look at the work of Nancy Krieger in public health and um, uh, Schweik at Berkeley, a historian, Uh, showing how disability was consistently connected to issues of immigration, of poverty and race. It's it's a matching that oftentimes has been present to further disadvantage certain groups. Uh, There is an interesting quote by Doug Baton who is a, a historian of disability. He said, not only has it been considered justifiable to treat people, I'm sorry, to treat disabled people unequally, but the concept of disability has been used to justify discrimination against other groups by attributing disability to them. Again, back to the notion of duality, of the dual nature of disability, that it can be a category of protection as support. But in this case, it's speaking to the point that disability is also a marker of disadvantage. And sometimes it's used to further marginalize certain groups. And You know, it is unfortunate that there is a lot of historical evidence of that and we need to be concerned and we need to be mindful of that history. Back to the idea of historical imagination, we need to know that history and we need to be careful how we're actually engaging with the notion of inclusive education and disability. Because what it does is that if we look at disability connected to race and, and class, what has led to is a framing of students, especially students of color, as broken, as people who lack, who are dangerous, who are unruly, and as uh, Michelle Fine will say, disposable. Um, <clears throat> especially in the in the last twenty some years, colorblind has been entwined with this logic. The assumption is that race doesn't matter anymore. People this the idea of race as it connects to disability and other areas and you know if we have instances of inequality connected to racism it might be because those indiv- we have a few bad individuals and so if we say that's the case that means that racism racism doesn't matter and what we end up doing is that we scapegoat culture we say there because there are so few, bad people. Inequality must be, if we have those racial inequalities or those socioeconomic inequalities, must be the product of people who are broken. These are culturally deficient bodies. And so we engage in this building of cycles of assuming that because there is no racism and no inequality, and we assume that these individuals are broken, The only way racial inequality will disappear is when 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 those individuals are fixed, whether it's low income or black people, etc. So a historical imagination related to this race, disability entanglement is huge. And we oftentimes avoid because race talk is not easy, it's not comfortable. But it's unfortunately a major category in American society that we need to uh, keep uh, my uh, remembering that it makes a difference. Um, the the third point that I want to mention about a historical imagination is that leadership matters. And your background is in leadership. You're, uh, you were sharing with me that you're the, finishing your doctorate in leadership and policy. Um, you know this better than me. Leadership matters. I mean, if you have strong leaders who are mindful of history, who um, are concerned and committed to an equity vision of inclusive education, they need to be raising these problems and they need to be engaging faculty and other professionals in schools in discussions about it. This is, the point is not to find people who are doing only racist things, but also things that are built in systems, in the practices, in the rules, in the policies that might be creating inequalities in the first place. Right now we have a federal system that requires districts and states to report disproportionality levels. And I'm using disproportionality in both ways, the over as well as the under representation. Um, What's happening at the national level is that despite the mandates from the federal government to report that, very few districts and states are actually finding disproportionality because the very definitions of what counts as disproportionality have been moved up to the point that it's almost impossible to ever document this proportionality because those thresholds are way too high to really reach that discussion, that, that level of decision. Uh, so there is gaming going on. And it's an example of how leadership can make a difference. If you engage as a leader with other stakeholders to really commit to find ways of providing inclusive education that is equitable, that is advancing education opportunity, I think you can really take advantage of this historical imagination that we so badly need. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I resonate with everything that you said there. and i I'm thinking about our um school leaders and other leaders in the system as they're listening to this and thinking about what are those you know, what are those actions that they need to take? And really, it's really that visioning piece that you're talking about and and um kind of peeling back the wallpaper on what has happened uh, in their context, wherever they are at. and really, um, not come, you know, we all come in with biases and assumptions, but to really do the work and that's what I'm hearing you say and that speaks to my heart as a as a leader to come in and, and not make those assumptions, um, to check your own biases and then ask of community, of, um, you, you talked about students, right? They, again, centering student voice, centering family voice, finding what has happened um, in that context historically is going to matter so much um, and moving forward to make it um, and in, you're talking really broader context, but really it's it's within every context that we operate in. And so, really making sure as leaders that we're coming in and, and taking time to do that thorough unpacking of that pretext, that his I, that the historical imagination. I'm carrying that one with me forever. Um, but you know, to really understand that as a leader, because that's going to help as you start to dream forward about how you're going to dismantle, because that's what you're naming is. White supremacy and systems that have um, really um, made uh, made this so we're co- constantly discriminating, right? In in a very um, in a way that oftentimes you know you name colorblind. That's one way in which we've done that. Um, but I, I just think um, that call to action for leaders. That's what I'm really hearing you say is to really think about your context. Really think about. Um, going back and really understanding all that's happened within that context, especially in um, special education and beyond, and finding those um, intersections, like to really understand what's happening before you make steps forward, um, and and to bring in family and student voices, so critical to understanding the complete picture, because what we measure and what we look at um, often is in. Um, is in a way that's not necessarily measuring all that we need to
2: know. Exactly, and you know, we need to understand also that what we're aspiring to achieve is not to reach a point or a level in which we're perfectly equitable, in which we have taken care of social justice. We developed capacity, we have the mechanisms in place. We don't have to worry about that anymore. That will never happen. The the work of social justice and equitable education is ongoing, it's never finished. It's something that we continue to ask because we are all prone to make mistakes and systems of people tend to create, unfortunately, those uh, hierarchies among subgroups. And we need to, for that reason, constantly review and, and reflect and change things as we need over time. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, when you're thinking about all this, what are some urgent next steps to strengthen equity-oriented visions of inclusive education?
2: Well, the most obvious one is that we need to uh, think about what we're doing to prepare leaders for this work, and you know, it's it's always attention to pack those programs with all the certification requirements and the mandates from the state, uh, as well as developing the ethical stance and the commitment to equity and the deep understanding of the history of of these problems. Um, I think it's one priority to really reconfigure leadership preparation. Uh, There have been efforts to do that. There have been efforts to do the same in teacher education. I think we have a long way to go. I think it's not enough for the universities to change the way they do it. The role of partnerships between universities and school systems is critical and the the closer they come together to examine these challenges on an ongoing basis, the better off uh, we're gonna be. Uh, It's exciting to see that now we have more um, design oriented approaches and partnerships to have researchers and university folks working alongside professionals in schools together to define the problems together to uh, design solutions together, to test the solutions together and to continue to develop that effort over time on an ongoing basis as opposed to just have the almighty university people come with all the answers when in reality we know it hasn't ever happened. So uh, that's a good development in this area but it's, it's something that we need to continue to do uh, in this uh, regard. The second thing is that as, as you reflect on uh, the, the different things I mentioned today, Inclusive education has to be examined and critiqued from a situated perspective. It's not enough to say the state of Washington has taken care of inclusion. Look at our indicators. We're showing great outcomes for graduation, for uh, reduction of uh, dropout, and uh, the connection to juvenile justice is minimal. Achievement is soaring, et cetera. I think any analysis of inclusive education has to be based on a situated perspective. That means that you need to examine the very specific contingencies of your school and your district to understand what are the actual consequences of the changes you made in policies, in training personnel, in investing in initiatives and so forth. Uh, because let's take, for example, the debate about racial disproportionality in special education and there are people saying, well, there is not a problem. Look at the data. And they're using national data to make big claims and draw over generalizations that don't apply to districts in Central Valley, California or in rural areas in Tennessee. We have to look at things from a situated perspective. So that's an important next step to really deploy the support system for leaders, for professionals to have evidence that will allow them to do those analysis in a situated way. The third one is to find opportunities for uh, communities of professionals as they do professional development not only to acquire knowledge and the latest strategies and technologies, but to also create opportunities to develop that historical imagination we were talking about. What does it mean to understand literacy development in this community, given the history of investments in the different communities, the way in which literacy is defined in different kinds of households and families, that the way in which literacy is enacted in an immigrant family at dinner time or before bed is very different from the one that you see in a European American middle-class community or or family. That we need to understand those histories and they don't necessarily have to be right. It doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. It's just that we need to be informed by those practices and find ways of bringing them to bear in what we're doing in the schools. So developing that imagination to be mindful of history to be mindful of cultural practices is a significant next step in my mind. Um, Another uh, next step for me is that I talked a lot about intersections of identities and how those matter in the lives of people. But we should also think that those identities, individuals are embedded in infrastructures and institutional contexts. That just because you are a member of different Groups, say a Latin ex male from a working class background who speaks two languages, it's not going to define everything I do at your school. It's not going to be my identity carrying all of the programs that I'm going to be using to act and speak and respond and engage and suggest and etc. That a lot of the things I do with all of my identities are very much molded or shaped in many ways by the context of the institution and the surrounding demands and expectations and the roles that you impose by having certain codes for behavior, for academic performance, et cetera. So we need to understand that people are not only performing their cultural codes, their identities, they are also coping with the demands of that institution, with the infrastructure surrounding it. And that sometimes what we see them do or say or think or express is the result of that coping that is not necessarily directly influenced or caused by those identities. I hope that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Absolutely. And we oftentimes color it in, the, in the form of and not look to the broader structural pieces. Right.
2: That... Exactly. So it's not about finding out and tracking what different groups do in our schools and districts is about understanding those groups and, and, and performance across groups as embedded in the infrastructures and institutional context. And sometimes it might require adjustments of those institutional contexts for the different groups to change things. And the last thing I wanna mention is that we need to amplify a language of possibility. We are masterful in education at documenting what's wrong with kids. They like this, they don't know that, they didn't learn this, their parents don't do that. They don't eat this, they don't sing this way, they don't read that way. I mean, we have inventory after inventory of things that we can document about what's wrong with kids. I understand we need to know the needs, we need to design plans and interventions to address the needs, but people are not only needs, They're not only lax, they also bring things. So a language of possibility is critical to see what are the assets that these people bring. What do they know? If they manage to survive despite all of the obstacles and barriers they face, they must have something that allows them to do that, to navigate new cultures, new institutions, environments that are set up for people from different social classes, et cetera. I mean, that's the history of the US. You see people moving up. I mean, that's what really uh, brings us to education because it's the quintessential social mobility tool. And we have seen that happen. It's beginning to change, unfortunately, but many generations benefited from that. And that in part was because what they brought to school was used as a resource, not as a problem. So a language of possibility is critical. In
1: inclusive education i'm just i'm just saying here and um the language of possibility just sings to my heart and i think about you know that presuming potential right that everyone has potential and brings strength that's really what it's the reframing and so much what we use in our data is really deficit-based what don't they have and it's really (laughs) Um, so to hear I, that does resonate so much to my heart um, as the language of possibilities. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just, um, you know, I think about leaders and thinking around how do they reframe that? And going back to your your point about um, structure, right, like how do you, leader, influence the structure um, that and if you're a school leader, how do you look at your school structure whether you, you have, you do have sphere of influence on certain things, what's your master, their structures within structures, what's your master schedule, what are those things? So, and, and then if you're a district leader, what are those bigger structures that you have influence over? Um, and we have ways in which to influence that. So as we think about, again, you know, that historical imagination and understanding that, and then really grasping on where are those pieces that you can shift and then, then really think about that language of possibility, right? Again, presuming um uh, potential. Yes. Everyone has potential and strength, and they bring you know beautiful qualities. And then you know, I guess what I um first generation immigrant family dual language, right? And looking at me, people would assume lots of things, probably not that. Right. And so when I think about um, mm. you know, speaking about what routines would look like and all, you know, what does literacy mean to this particular culture or context and honoring those and finding ways to uplift and, and celebrate and incorporate, right? That's a strength. Yes, so yes. how do we, we build from the strengths that everyone brings uh, and not have this just normative White centric, (laughs) that this is what this has to look like, you know, um, and that's what we're we're trying to shoot for, is it? So I go back to your visioning, you know, around what if, you know, what is the what if that we really want, and and when we think about education as a a vehicle through which, you know, you're talking about mobility and moving, um, and it's been that for generations. How do we how do we recapture that? And and make sure that that's a a promise that can happen for everyone. Exactly. You know, so oh my goodness, this has been so so wonderful. I have just so enjoyed this, and I I have so many more questions. I know we're running out of time. Um. So I I'm just looking at our time to see what more I can ask you, but I maybe one of my questions would be, like, if you were going to talk to school leaders. What if you know? What advice would you give to a school leader who's just starting out on this journey of inclusive education, right? As they are beginning to think and envision about the what if, like, what advice might you give them? Because <laughs> this is so broad of a you know what we're talking about, so broad. So, what might you say to an, a new leader thinking um, and journeying on inclusion?
2: Um. Where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. The first thing I will try to explain is if you commit to this vision of inclusive education that we just sketched out here, this is not something you do alone. Don't ever try to do it on your own because you're going to burn out in three years. You need to bring a, a collective vision to find the partners and the alliances you need to build, whether it's with superintendents or the principals, educators, families, uh, other stakeholders. And you need to think about that. Who are the people that play a significant role in my life as a leader? And all of the people that I just mentioned do. So you have to find opportunities. Not everybody is gonna play with the rules and the vision that you are subscribing to. So you need to first start with the people who are eager to engage in that vision. So. Coalition building is key, and you need to think about that and how you build it over time, including parents and families.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna ask
2: that. Right, they have to be a part of it. And you know there is interesting work, for example, that uh, my colleague, Idan Ball from the University of Wisconsin-Madison is doing around discipline disparities. And he's using this model called formative intervention. Um, And the idea is that they bring together teams of people to look at the data together, including families, parents, and youth, with administrators and teachers. And they have over a number of sessions, a deliberative community in which they examine the assumptions, the consequences, the the people that are being affected, the the problematic aspects of, of the rules and the policies and the way those policies are enacted and implemented. And as they map, all of those things, they begin to find ways of tweaking those systems between the rules and the tools and uh, the division of labor and the participation that each of these members have in that system. And the result at the end is a reconfiguration of the policies and practices. So that's an interesting way of enacting or operationalizing this idea of building coalitions. (coughs) Excuse me. It's not easy work, it it entails oftentimes talking about justice, equity, race, class, gender, that not everybody's comfortable doing, but you have to do it. I mean, kids and families, especially families of color, leave that in and out every day, and they will have to bring it up in that discussion because that's their experience, and we as administrators need to be comfortable with that. So that coalition building and recruiting and rallying families and students and other professionals to work with us is critical. The second thing is respect. Respect goes a long way. We all want to be respected, especially for marginalized groups. And I I was an administrator and a teacher for a while before I I came into the academy and the door was always open for me when I expressed respect for those individuals. independent of their socioeconomic status, whether they spoke my language or not, whether they believed in me or not, whether they made assumptions about me or not. There are ways of communicating respect. Anywhere from having interpreters at parent-teacher conferences and having more structural kinds of things that will signal to the communities you're serving that you respect them and you value their perspective, all the way to the way you use your body and your voice to communicate with them. You know, respect is an abstract notion. We all get it, it makes sense. How you live that, how you communicate that is the hardest part. And, you know, think about how you do that at home, with your partner, with your children. We communicate it in different ways. I'm not saying that we're terrible at it, but I'm saying we do it in very different ways. And, you know, having a teenage daughter myself <laughs> teaching me a lot about respect and the way I listen <clears throat> and the way I respond and provide advice mm-hmm. uh, and the way I listen non-judgmentally. I mean, that has been a big message for my daughter. Can mm-hmm. You listen without judging. We are masterful at judging. Oh, <laughs> We are with adults. <laughs> yeah. So respect is about that. It's about listening without judging others. And it's so hard, especially if we are in a position of power as a leader. We have a lot of power. And you still have to evaluate things, data, people, practices. But in the day-to-day interactions, can you find the space to really do that? I think it's quite a quite a challenge. I I will invite everybody to try it, and it will be humbling, (laughs) I can assure you. Uh, I love um, that. Yeah, and you know. Developing a vision that is equally concerned, not only with what the the community lacks or needs, but also the assets. We were talking about that a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Um, To what extent is the curriculum reflecting the way in which students from the communities they come from? uh, Are we representing ways of doing that? There is very interesting work in the learning sciences now doing that with Native American communities, with African American communities, with Latinx communities. Um, There are ways of finding opportunities to connect. There, People are talking about um, unsettling the curriculum, the subject matter. We made a lot of assumptions about how you teach English, how you teach geography, social studies, English, that are driven by the canon. The way we have known that this is the way you teach the subject matter, the way you show that you know your English or your grammar or your math. But there is a lot of, there is a wealth of wisdom in every community about each of those subject matters. They may not codify that knowledge as content. They might use it, however, every day in the jobs they do, when they take measures, as gardeners, as tailors, as cooks. As whatever they do, doctors, physicians, et cetera. So, there are efforts that teach leaders that you can tap into those assets. And when you think about the language of possibility, that's what I'm talking about. Finding the wealth of knowledge and the wisdom that families bring that can inform pedagogy and the curriculum and assessment. And there is plenty of work around funds of knowledge, around uh, the capital wealth of communities. Um, cultural validity, validity in assessments, etc. Um, But this idea of possibility is hard because we go straight to find the needs and the lacks and bringing the possibility is always as, it has to take us a, a moment to reflect on it, to get at it. So those are some of the things that come to mind that I will share with a, a new leader. <clears throat> wow, um, again, I'm
1: just, just sitting here absorbing everything that you're sending my way and yes absolutely um and i think about you're talking about funds of knowledge i think about anne ishimaru um we've been studying with her in just schools um and thinking around you know how about communities and families and centering those knowledges right um and how how do we go about that in ways that are authentic Um, and not measuring back to this particular standard that we're saying, but creating co-designing is really what we're talking about. And um, and that co-design is so essential um, to really meet needs. So there isn't um, thinking about, you can't just, if things were working earlier, I was talking with our, um, uh, 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 Glenna Gallo, who is the uh, assistant superintendent here in Washington state and, and you know, she had some great things that happened in Utah and they kept asking her, was she going to bring them to Washington? And her response was basically, no, that we can't just, you know, bring this over here. We need to understand the context and the community. Uh, What what are the needs and what are the strengths? And that's exactly what you're speaking to right here, right? uh, And then then we go forward in co-designing it. And it's not, it's who gets a seat at the table. And then also understanding when we invite people to the table, um, and especially um, people who have oftentimes not been invited, that we need to remember there's always that power dynamic that you spoke to also in making and ensuring that their voices are are really a, a, a on equal par. And, um, you know, because they're always, uh, you know, some of my um, experiences have been, you know, of, they're afraid that what they say will disinvite them from the table. So right. how do we create... Um, ways in which people feel that they will have a seat and it is a constant seat at the table. And and those in power don't get to decide when and how they get to show up at the table.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly, yeah. And if I may, let me just add a couple of other ideas uh, in that conversation. Um, Positionality is critical. As a leader, you need to understand where you're coming from. What is your position? We all bring trajectories and histories. As a person of color, I have a number of vulnerabilities in this society, but I also have a lot of privileges. By virtue of being a man, I have a lot of power in this society. By virtue of being a middle-class person, I have a lot of advantages. i also have a number of disadvantages that's related to other aspects of my uh, position. So leaders need to have a deep understanding of themselves. They need to understand who they are, where they come from, what, uh, do the race, gender, class, language, et cetera, do to their uh, capacity as a leader? And uh, how where they stand on issues of equity? We all have weaknesses and blind spots, and we need to spend time cultivating that awareness, that meta-awareness that we need to have, because we want to model that in our teams. We want to show that you are conscious and aware of those, and you try to use them productively to the benefit of the community you're serving. So positionality is critical to cultivate, not in a single exercise, once a year, it's something that you try to do over time, to really uh, grow as an adult. And the other thing is to remember, what is your vision and your theory of leadership? If you're there to get the awards and the recognitions and the medals and the diplomas, it's gonna be a very different ride because those moments are very few (laughs) uh, as a leader. You know, to me, the the power of a leader is related to the invisibility of that person. A good leader is invisible. You don't notice that leader because you're not there to get the credit. You want your team to get the accolades. You want to make sure that the people doing the work every day with you are the ones. You bring the vision, you bring the expectation setting, you bring the incentives and the push and the feedback, et cetera, but it's not about you. It's about making sure that you get the work done in the system and you are just an important engine, but you should be invisible. And this is so important and difficult because we we glorify leadership as the person that is right on the stage, getting the spotlight and getting all the credit, it, sh- it should be the opposite. And not everybody's willing to do that, but in my experience, it is critical because in the end, it brings you more rewards. If you see the people that you are investing in growing and developing and getting that rec- their, um, recognition they deserve.
1: Wow, you have just brought so much to the table today and I I'm gonna have to go back and listen to this so many times. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so I was just this has been wonderful to have time with you and just listen and think of deeply really about what it is when we talk about inclusion, how as leaders can we think um, and 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 dream. And, and then take action, right? Um, to really improve all students' experiences, but especially those who have been marginalized. And uh, so I just thank you so much for your time today. I thank yes. you for joining us and sharing your, your thoughts and your wisdom to that. And I'm so looking forward to our whole ta- you know, just to continue to walk and learn with you. And just thank you again for your time. It's just been fantastic today. Thank you so
2: much.
0: Want some support with your inclusionary practices work? Head to our website, awsp.org, where you will find a ton of resources, many of which were talked about in this podcast. You will find on-demand courses, videos to watch with your staff, workshops, articles, podcasts, and more. Can't find what you're looking for? Please reach out to us, and we'll be happy to help. How about some professional learning that's relevant and fun? At AWSP, we believe adult learning should be fun and engaging, just like it should be for the students in your building. We promise to never deliver death by PowerPoint and bore you with sit and get learning. You know, a good friend of mine said professional learning equals self-care. And self-care, that's how you get your power back. So at AWSP, we are all about supporting you and partnering with you on your professional leadership development. You know, one size doesn't fit all. So we provide a number of different ways for principals, assistant principals to stay sharp and improve their skills. We offer content for interns, assistant principals, and principals in all stages of their career. We do that in person when we can, and of course online. From our cohort-based launching school leadership and building effective leadership networks to our video workshops, we've got something bound to be right up your alley. Visit our website for more information on engaging and dynamic professional learning. This series has been made possible through a generous grant from the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, Inclusionary Practices Project. We hope you've enjoyed this special podcast series on inclusionary practices for the school leader. Thanks for listening.
2: Thanks for listening. To catch all of our episodes, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you can watch AWSP TV and our other great video content. If you have ideas for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, shoot me an email at david at awsp.org. We'll do our best to make it happen. On behalf of all of us at AWSP, we hope you tune in again. Keep up the great work for
1: kids, and we'll see you next time.